as we do now reopen your holy word, we ask most humbly and most earnestly that, Lord, you will not let any one of us here today hear your word in vain. We pray the Holy Spirit will clothe the preaching of your word and clothe the hearing thereof, that your word will run unencumbered, unhindered, that it will run and be glorified this very day. For your saints, to our greater sanctification, and for the sinner in his or her unbelief, Lord, may this be the day of their salvation. By your grace and mercy through the preaching of your holy word in the power of the blessed spirit. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I invite you to take God's word and let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As we will be considering this morning what I've entitled Gospel-Driven Mercy. Gospel-Driven Mercy. Matthew chapter 5, let's just read verse 7. Matthew 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of the living God. As we return to our study on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, there is a critical principle here which I cannot stress enough. When we look at the Beatitudes, we are not seeing virtues that are natural and common to all people. The Beatitudes are a divine portrait of a believer in Jesus Christ. Hence, to be poor in spirit, or to mourn, or to be meek, and to hunger and thirst for righteousness, these characteristics are the result of God's saving grace in the life of a sinner. The Beatitudes then proclaim what God's grace transforms a sinner to be in the essence of his character that has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So, if we are true Christians then we should see ourselves reflected in these Beatitudes. Another important point to be made about the Beatitudes is that there is a definite order and sequence in how Jesus presents them. This means that there is a logical succession and progression following each Beatitude. Those who are poor in spirit will be those who mourn. Those who mourn will be those who are meek, and on it goes. And yet, at the same time, because of the present tense verbs that Jesus uses for these Beatitudes, each of these spiritual qualities will be a lifetime characteristic for the believer in Christ. Now, so far in our exposition of the Beatitudes, we've only considered the first four, which are recorded in verses 3 through 6. 
we have seen that a Christian is someone who is, first of all, poor in spirit. This term describes the initial and basic self-realization in every true believer where they come to see that apart from God, they are spiritually bankrupt and impoverished. But then second of all, having come to see their spiritual bankruptcy before God, a Christian mourns over their sinful state. This means that in the heart of a true Christian is a genuine sadness over what they have done by sinning against God. They are full of godly sorrow. But having seen their spiritual state for what it really is apart from God, the brokenhearted believer becomes, by God's grace, the meek believer. That is, their heart toward God is now pliant. It is yielding. It is teachable. Horrified by their sin and fleeing from it, a Christian is finished with all he is and gives himself completely over to God in humble submission. This is the grace of meekness. Lastly, however, from spiritual poverty to godly sorrow to a humble submission to God, a Christian discovers a whole new change of desire. There is now a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Having renounced a life of sin and self-serving, the new heart of a believer in Christ yearns to live a life pleasing to God. It is a life that honors and glorifies God from what their heart desires to how they treat others. This is the righteousness a Christian craves, a craving that longs to obey God, not just in part, but in the whole of their lives. So then by these first four Beatitudes, we see that a genuine Christian is someone who feels their spiritually bankrupt condition mourns over the sinfulness of their sin with a broken heart. Moreover, they give themselves completely to God's will, purpose, and power for their lives because in their soul is a passion, is a drive to magnify Christ with a life that conforms to his righteous standard. This is the nature and character of an authentic believer in Jesus Christ. But now this morning we approach the fifth beatitude. And in this fifth beatitude, we see a progression in the description our Lord is giving us about his true followers. Where the first four beatitudes dealt almost entirely with what we are before God from an inward standpoint, the fifth beatitude centers on the display of what God's grace has done. In Matthew 5, 7, Again, we read, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Having received the mercy of God and salvation through Jesus Christ, a mercy that has given a sinner the eyes to see his own sinfulness and desperate need for Christ to save him, thus turning him toward Christ in faith, the Christian becomes himself a merciful person. In fact, this is how we need to understand the wording of this beatitude. When Jesus declares, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, our Lord is not saying that if we are merciful, then God will in turn be merciful to us. If you're reading it that way, you're reading it wrong. God saving mercy cannot be 
earned by anything we do. Otherwise, it's not mercy. It's not mercy we're getting, but justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. So we must not understand our Lord's words here as teaching some sort of works righteousness. Nothing can be further from the truth. What Christ is teaching as a general gospel principle is that being merciful is the natural result of receiving Christ and experiencing the grace of God. Because if we are not merciful, then we prove by our actions that we have not received God's mercy, and therefore we will not receive the fullness of his mercy on the day of judgment. So then a Christian is someone who is a merciful person. Listen to that. A Christian is someone who is a merciful person. This is the fundamental truth of Matthew 5 and verse 7. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you're a part of his kingdom, then you will show that by a disposition toward others which is merciful. Now, for our exposition of this fifth beatitude, I want to underscore two major points. First, the meaning of mercy. And then second, the manifestation of mercy. The meaning and the manifestation. Beginning first with the meaning of mercy. Reading again, Matthew 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As we begin facing this beatitude, the most searching question for all of us to inquire is this. Are we merciful? Are we merciful? And we have to ask this question because our Lord, again, He's describing someone who belongs to him. So this is a Christian. This is a believer in Christ. And a Christian is merciful. But stating this requires obviously a definition. What is it then to be merciful or to show mercy? Well, as we've done with all of our previous studies in the Beatitudes, we'll start with the negative, what it's not. To be merciful is not to be easygoing. Where one winks at sin and seeks to ignore and bypass the standards of justice and righteousness. A mercy that attempts to circumvent justice is not true mercy, it is anarchy. In fact, as John MacArthur noted... In his own exposition of this text, he writes, It is thought to be unloving and unkind to hold people responsible for their sins. Imagine that. And there are people in the church that feel that way. He says, But that is a cheap grace. That is not just and is not merciful. 
that offers neither punishment nor pardon for sin. And because it merely overlooks sin, it leaves sin. And the one who relies on that sort of mercy is left in his sin. To cancel justice is to cancel mercy. And a lot of people don't get that. Also, moving on. To be merciful is not a mere sentimental silent concern for others that may recognize their misery but will not lift a finger to help and relieve. That is not mercy. This kind of person is no more indifferent than the priest and Levite whom Jesus condemns in his parable of the Good Samaritan. As a broken, beaten, and wounded man lay on the side of the road in desperate need of help, the priest and Levite, two men who were experts in God's word and should have known that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, as the Lord says in Hosea 6 and verse 6, those two men just passed right on by. Completely and shamefully indifferent to that poor, injured man. Whatever mercy those two rogues might have represented, it was a pretended mercy to be sure. But most importantly, based on the context of Matthew chapter 5, not to mention scripture as a whole, to be merciful, and listen real closely to this, to be merciful is not only meeting the temporal needs of those who are suffering. This means that while it is right and good and necessary to relieve those who are suffering due to present physical circumstances, yet for the Christian, listen, for the Christian, mercy goes much further because Christian mercy carries with it a gospel-redeeming motive. And with that statement, let's begin to unpack the biblical definition of what it is to be merciful. In its most basic form, it is compassion in action. It is compassion in action. As the Puritan Thomas Watson observed... It is a melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. A.W. Pink teased this out even more when he said of mercy that it is a compassion of soul that causes its possessor to make the case of another his own so that he is grieved by it. But this grief is not stagnant. It is not static. For the merciful believer will go to the relief of that one in misery. Mercy, therefore, is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin. But it is here that we must understand that biblical mercy is supremely a holy compassion. 
a holy compassion because while it seeks to relieve others in their suffering due to the consequences of sin, yet this relief mission never ignores or denies or mollycoddles the sin of the sinner. It is therefore a gospel mercy because it not only binds the wounds of a broken body, but it seeks to reconcile the sinner to God by pointing them to Christ for their salvation. Now, surely the greatest example of this kind of mercy was in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the one hand, we see Jesus time and again showing mercy to the multitudes in their sickness, disease, and distress. We see Christ healing blind beggars, cleansing lepers, feeding the hungry, delivering demoniacs from their spiritual oppression, and even bringing the dead back to life. Our Lord was the good Samaritan personified in perfection. Sinclair Ferguson said this of Christ. We encountered, when he encountered broken reeds, he did not break them, he healed them. When he met men whose lives were like dimly burning wicks, he did not quench them. He fanned them into flames. Jesus restored the weak and the bruised. He never passed them by or worse, trampled on them. But, on the other hand, with all that Christ did to relieve the temporal pains and sorrows of sinful men and women, his greatest demonstration of mercy would be by fulfilling the mission for which God sent his son into the world to do. And what was this mission? Well, in John chapter 3, in verse 16 and 17, two verses I'm sure none of you are familiar with, the ultimate mission of Jesus Christ is clarified in unmistakable terms. Listen to these verses which I know you are very familiar with. Listen to them with fresh ears. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world through him might be saved. The mission of Jesus Christ was a mission of mercy. It was a mission of mercy. But it was the greatest kind of mercy that could be given for sinful people like us. It is the mercy of God in saving sinners. A mercy manifested by both the life and death of Christ being given as the substitute for his people. So by his life, he, he, he manifested God's saving mercy by living in perfect obedience to God's law, thus rendering for his people a perfect righteousness God would accept. And by his death, Jesus manifested God's mercy by making a perfect atonement for all the sins of all his people. The entire scope of Christ's earthly ministry was to glorify and fulfill the saving mercy of God. In fact, the very purpose for why Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, raised the dead, the purpose of each of these temporal mercies was to point 
sinners to the ultimate mercy, which was receiving Christ alone as their Savior and Redeemer. This is why, therefore, the mercifulness of a Christian, now listen to this, listen closely. This is why the mercifulness of a Christian is different. It is different than the natural instinctive mercy of an unbeliever. Since all, all men in general, all of mankind, bears the image of God, though, of course, that image has been marred greatly by sin, there is found in some people a disposition which is amiable, kind, sympathetic, and proactive to relieve the sufferings of hurting people. The natural man, the unbeliever, will build hospitals, soup kitchens, and houses to help his fellow man who is hurting and in need. The unbeliever will do that. And we see that. We see that witness before us every day in spades. But in all these acts of charity, and here's the difference, and you need to get this. In all these acts of charity, the natural man despises God. He transgresses God's law. And he mocks the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hence, his humanitarianism is powerless compassion because it leaves his fellow man perishing in his sin. That is a very, very critical point that we must never lose sight of. But the mercy of a Christian, the mercy of a Christian is not a natural mercy, but a supernatural. It is a mercy that, yes, will build hospitals, soup kitchens, and houses for the homeless. Yes, absolutely. But its aim and purpose, its aim and purpose is to glorify God by pointing sinners to the mercy of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. So then Christian mercy is compassion in action, but it is a compassion which is driven and governed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian mercy is not just going to build a house for the homeless and leave them there. Well, you got your home, and that's it. No, we'll build the home, and with it, we will make certain that those unbelievers hear the gospel. We'll make certain that we give them Christ. Not just brick and mortar that will pass away and leave them to perish in their sins. No. We will build the house and give them even greater than the house. We will give them Christ. That's the difference. That's the difference.
Well, with the meaning of mercy before us now, let's turn to our second major point, which is the most practical of the two, and that is what I'm calling the manifestation of mercy. Since Jesus clearly defines and describes his people as merciful, in what ways should we expect to see Christians manifesting godly mercy? Biblically, there are two ways that godly mercy should be seen in all of us as believers in Christ. First, by physical deeds, D-E-E-D-S, by physical deeds. The mercifulness of a Christian is shown by seeking to relieve the physical consequences of sin in the lives of others. In fact, the mercifulness of a Christian is the picture of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, 30-37. In that parable, if you remember, we see the Good Samaritan taking full responsibility for the man he found injured on the side of the road. This injured man was not only a total stranger, but more than that, he was a Jew. He was a Jew, as implied by the story. The significance of this was that Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. They hated each other in that time and period and would therefore have refused to dare help one another. But this Samaritan, he did the unthinkable. He showed mercy to this Jewish stranger. He ministered to his broken and bruised body and did everything he could to provide for restoration and healing and this was his central focus. He did not deal, for instance, with the cause of the man's need by, say, chasing the robbers. So it was not retribution the Good Samaritan sought after. Nor did he complain about the failure of society to meet the man's needs. Such protests was not the appropriate remedy for the man's condition. Rather, the Samaritan sought to work in the context of the immediate need set before him and to bring relief. He sought to show mercy. And he showed mercy at great cost to himself. Have you ever considered that? Think about the danger he was putting himself in by helping this man. You know, the robbers could return. They could. The robbers could return. Or what about the simple inconvenience he brought to himself? He could not call 911. There was not that. Everything it would take to get this poor man to shelter and safety rested in the hands of the Samaritan. But he was prepared to do the hard things for the sake of mercy being rendered to this man. Yet what we see in the good Samaritan is what we should see in our own hearts and lives as Christians because of what God's grace has made us. First, in meeting the physical needs of our Christian, Christian brethren, our fellow Christians, our brothers, our sisters in Christ. First John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says it all. All, all I got to do is just quote this, no commentary, because it says it. First John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, listen to this. By this, 
we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I've said. In addition to meeting the physical needs of fellow Christians, though, we are also to meet the physical needs of our fellow man. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the great point of the Good Samaritan. Now, I want you to listen to how J.C. Ryle challenges us as Christians on this matter from his exposition on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm going to quote our dear brother here at length. This is really good, and it is very convicting. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, now, if these words mean anything, talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, if these words mean anything, a Christian ought to be ready to show kindness and brotherly love to everyone that is in need. Our kindness must not merely extend to our families and friends and relations. We must love all men and be kind to all whenever occasion requires. We must beware of an excessive strictness in scrutinizing the past lives of those who need our aid. Are they in real trouble? Are they in real distress? Do they really want help? Then according to the teaching of this parable, we ought to be ready to assist them. We should regard the whole world as our parish and the whole race of mankind as our neighbors. We should seek to be the friend of everyone who is oppressed or neglected or afflicted or sick or in prison or poor or an orphan or a heathen or a slave or an idiot or starving or dying. We should exhibit such worldwide friendship, no doubt, wisely, discreetly, and with good sense, but of such friendship we never need be ashamed. The ungodly may sneer at it as extravagance and fanaticism, but we need not mind that. To be friendly to all men in this way is to show something of the mind that was in Christ. And I read that, closed the book and said, well, how much repenting do I have to do right now? So when we as Christians show ourselves as merciful we do so first and foremost in the matter of meeting the physical needs of others in their misery. We show forth the spirit and grace of the good Samaritan. But our mercy, our mercy as believers in Christ, listen closely, our mercy as believers in Christ does not end with bandaging wounds and satisfying starving bellies. As I've already belabored to show, Christian mercy goes further. It goes further and it goes greater. We not only seek to meet physical needs, but we also strive to be merciful in meeting spiritual needs. Spiritual needs. And this is where Christian mercy is a gospel mercy. But how is this gospel mercy displayed in us? Well, in Thomas Watson's exposition of this fifth beatitude, he gave four 
specific ways in which a Christian should seek to show mercy to the souls of men. Not, not the bodies, but the souls. To the souls of men. First, by showing them pity. By showing them pity. This is where mercy toward others in sin arises. It begins with a genuine feeling of pity and compassion for where they are due to their sin. Like our Lord himself, when he saw the multitudes in Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the multitudes helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, the scripture says he had compassion on them. Well, should we be any different? Bearing the image of Christ in the new nature, our heart should break over the enslavement of sin suffered by men, women, and children. We should be moved with pity for sinners without Christ. Second, we show mercy to sinners by exposing their sinful condition. By exposing their sinful condition. On this point, Watson said, Tell them in what a sad condition they are, even in the gall of bitterness. Show them their danger. They tread upon the banks of a bottomless pit. If death gives them a jog, they tumble in. There is a cruel mercy when we see men go on in sin and we let them alone. And there is a merciful cruelty when we are sharp against men's sins and will not let them go to hell quietly. If a man's house were on fire and another should see it and not tell him of it for fear of waking him, were not this cruelty? When we see others sleeping the sleep of death and the fire of God's wrath ready to burn about their ears and we are silent, is not this to be accessory to their death? Beloved, listen to me. This is the weightiness we must feel for sinners outside of Christ. Knowing they are a mere breath away from hell. A mere breath. What greater mercy can we show them than to tell them of their danger and show them the way of escape? Neither Christ nor the apostles shied from exposing the sinful and perilous condition of which sinners lived, nor should we. Nor should we. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20 should be our constant model on this point. Where the apostle Paul, if you remember, he labored to unpack how all men in their sin are justly under the wrath of God, living under the power of sin as rebels against God and despisers of his righteousness. This is the truth that all people everywhere must be confronted with if they are to see their need for Christ. This is merciful. It's merciful. No matter how negative or offensive it may be, in fact, when a people have... Now, now do listen to this. When a people have... No biblical witness to their sin and the danger therein as sinners without Christ when there is no witness whatsoever to them of that. That is not a people under the mercy of God, friend. That is a people under God's judgment. They're under judgment. 
They're not being shown the kindness of God. That's wrath. That's judgment. Third, we show mercy to sinners by praying for them. By praying for them. If you, if you really want to test how merciful you are as a Christian, how regular and constant do you pray for the salvation of sinners? How regular and constant do you pray for the salvation of sinners? Paul wrote in Romans 10 and verse 1, following that great, awesome chapter in Romans that's all about the sovereignty of God and salvation, immediately following that, Paul then opens up Romans 10, at least what we call Romans 10. He, he opens up with saying, and my prayer, my heart's desire to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Wait a minute, Paul, I thought God was sovereign in salvation. I thought God already chose who will be saved. Yes, and I will pray all the more that God will save them. I'll pray all the more God will save them. Because it's God alone who does save. So what are you going to do? You pray for God to save them. Beloved, how regular and constant do you pray for God to send his workers to witness to sinners? Matthew 9, 38. Matthew 9, 38. That, that is a command of Christ himself, that we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send his labors into the harvest. Because the harvest is plentiful, but Jesus says the laborers are what? Few. Few. And we heard this morning, we heard earlier this morning in the teaching, in the teaching on effectual calling in the confession, I brought out the whole reality of the 1040 window. How many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sinners in that region of the world, the Middle East, Asia, North Africa, have never heard the gospel from birth to death, from birth to death. So many of them will never hear the gospel. The most unreached population of the entire world. Are we praying that God will send his laborers to that region? That, that, that is showing mercy. That's showing mercy. God have mercy on all those sinners in the 1040 window of this world. Prayer for God to have saving mercy on others is no small, insignificant act of mercy. But fourth and finally, we show mercy to sinners by proclaiming the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And let me just say this, this is the most merciful thing we can do. The most merciful thing we can do. Thomas Watson, he teased this out further by saying this. He said, the preaching of the word is nothing but showing mercy to souls. This is a mighty and glorious engine in the hand of the Lord of hosts for the beating down of the devil's strongholds. It is a sin-killing, soul-quickening ordinance 
It is the power of God to salvation. And that is why, brothers and sisters, even right here at Providence Reform Baptist Church, may we never, ever, ever, ever take for granted that every week, every week right here, the mercy of God is shown in spades by what I'm doing right now. The preaching of the word. Do you think you deserve this? None of us deserve this. We don't deserve this. This is a mercy. This is a mercy to have this given week after week after week. Because we all know, even here in the belt buckle of the Bible Belt of the United States, Alabama, that not every single local church has this mercy. They don't. And we know that. So how grateful to God we should be every week. Lord, thank you for the mercy. Thank you for the mercy that you have given me every week to hear the faithful proclamation of your word. Let me not ever dare take that for granted. Well, if Christian mercy is to be shown in all its fullness, then we meet both the physical and spiritual needs of others. To the world at large, we carry ourselves as both the Good Samaritan and the Gospel preacher. Our greatest aim, however, is that sinners will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, if all we have built for them is a house... If all we have done is fill their bellies, that is not enough. They're still going to hell. They're still perishing. We have got to give them Christ. But to the church, to our fellow believers in Christ, we demonstrate mercy in the same way but with one difference. Now listen to this. See, I haven't got to this yet, but this is, this is the conclusion, by the way. So listen closely. We do all we can as fellow Christians, we do all we can to build one another up in Christ. Since a Christian has already come to faith in Christ, then the mission of mercy for fellow Christians toward each other is, according to Galatians 6 and verse 2, it is to bear one another's spiritual burdens. This means interceding in prayer admonishing when disobedient, exhorting to greater maturity, and loving one another as Christ has loved us. This is how we show mercy to each other. So in light of this, let me ask you once again, how merciful are you? How merciful are you? Matthew 5, 7 puts all of us on notice. This is the disposition of the true Christian. Now granted, sanctification is a process. It's a process. So we're growing in this. That's the reason I'm asking the question, how merciful are you? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Does this describe accurately your own disposition? Merciful. Does your heart ache 
with great pain over the plight of others in their misery because of sin? Do you pity people in their sin? And if you have such pity, how far does it go? How far does it go? Is it merely a quiet feeling that we keep to ourselves? Or, or do, do your feelings of pity translate into action? Is there anyone right now? Okay, so here, here's a real challenge. Is there anyone right now within the circle of your influence with whom you have the power to relieve their suffering, whether it be physical or spiritual, and what are you doing about that? What are you doing about that? Beloved, we need to understand this. Mercy to others is a mark of salvation. It's evidence that God has saved you. It's evidence God has saved you. Mercy to others. It is, it is the proof, indeed one of many proofs, that the Lord has indeed saved you. So, so to, both, to both the believer and to the unbeliever, are you merciful? Are you merciful? Well, let this be your prayer. May God's word search your heart today. Search it thoroughly to discover where you really are, where you really stand in this regard. And beloved, if you come to the realization, if you come to the realization honestly this morning that you are not merciful whatsoever, that you are in fact a sinner without Christ, then I urge you, I plead with you, do not delay. Turn to Christ. Trust him. Trust him and receive his saving mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy, merciful Father, we give you continued thanks, Lord, for the multitude of tender mercies that you show to us each and every day. Every day, Lord, your word tells us your mercies are new. And we thank you most especially for the ultimate mercy, the mercy of sending your one and only Son, your only begotten Son, into this world to save sinners, to save all those sinners, Father, that you gave to your Son to save. And how we thank you with great, great and deep humility that you chose to save even us. You chose to show even we here 
that mercy, that redeeming mercy in Christ Jesus. But Father, we confess to you that as your people, we have so much repenting to do for the many ways that we have fallen short in showing godly, gospel-driven mercy to others. And especially, Lord, in the many opportunities that we've had to, to show that gospel mercy by actually communicating the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to those sinners who are perishing in their sins. Whether they be in our family circle, whether they be those in our, our neighborhoods or those in the workplace or elsewhere, Lord, we we pray that you will work in each one of us, Father, the, the grace, the enormous grace, the sanctifying grace that will drive us, each one of us, to boldly, mercifully bear witness to the truth of Christ, to those in our circle of influence who have been providentially placed there not to be left in their sin by us, but to be prayed for and to be given the gospel verbally, orally. Lord, we pray that the fear of man that impedes so many of us from doing this would be put to death in all of us. And that we would remember that Jesus Christ our Lord is worthy he is worthy to be proclaimed. And because of his worthiness, may we be emboldened, Lord, we pray, to so give the gospel to others and show that act of mercy that honors and glorifies you, Lord. For such things we pray and ask in the name of our Lord Jesus and for his sake, amen.